Father, we praise you for the living hope that we find in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that he is victorious over sin and death and hell and the grave. And we praise you that through faith in him, we stand in his victory today. Father, we thank you for the confidence of this good news of the gospel that in both life and death, your name will be exalted and be seen as great above all else. So Father, this morning, center our hearts on your name. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would search our hearts, that you would know us, that you would reveal sin. Father, we submit ourselves now under the authority of your word. We ask that you would use it to edify your church and to glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. So Holy Spirit, have your way in this place now. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18 today. If you're uh, here today as our guest, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And what we've been doing as a church family uh, over the last couple months is we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Uh, as many, if not most of you are aware this morning, we do have lots of exciting things we need to be able to share about with you. Uh, at the end of our time of worship today, we're going to take about 20 minutes to do that. Uh, but as we do every single week, we first and foremost want to make sure we give uh, attention to God's Word, and that's what we're going to do here uh, for the next few minutes, but we're going to jump right into things today. Uh, many of you know I have three boys, uh, seven, five, and three are their ages, and uh, the older they get and the more time I spend with them, the more and more I am convinced that each of them suffers from a very rare physical condition and that they have two very, very different stomachs. And uh, one stomach is known as the dinner stomach, and the other stomach is known as the snack stomach. I wonder if have any other parents seen your children suffer through this rare condition. So uh, the, sna- the dinner stomach, I'm convinced it's about the size of a kernel of corn because that's about all they eat before they make the declaration that they are full. Um, I can't eat anymore. I've, I've eaten as much as I possibly can. And yet, I, even after making that declaration, very often our boys will come down the stairs 30 minutes later and let us know what? I'm hungry. I'm like, that's amazing that your body can process that food so quickly and that all of a sudden you are hungry again. Now, the snack stomach has infinite capacity infinite capacity of the snack stomach, as many crackers as possible, as many chips as possible, as many cookies as possible. And so when our boys come downstairs after sitting at the dinner table and barely touching their food, the problem is not that there has been a lack of provision. The problem is that there's been a lack of participation. And in the same way for us as followers of Jesus, as we just sang a moment ago, as we declared the victory of Jesus Christ, and declared his perfect finished work, we know that there's no amount of work that we can do to be saved. There's no amount of good works that we can do. Ephesians 2 says that we were uh, not good people who needed to be made better. Ephesians 2 says we were dead people who needed to be made alive. God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. We were dead because of our sin. That was not any work that we did. That was completely and totally the work of God. And yet the end of Ephesians 2, verse 10, tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So while the work of our salvation is completely and totally a work of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are not called simply to be uh, casual observers, but we are to be active participants within the work of God in our lives, particularly when it comes to our holiness. 
Whenever we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God immediately begins a work in our hearts and our lives called sanctification. And this is a work uh, that is both instantaneous and it's progressive. It's instantaneous in that the moment we put our faith in Christ, we are immediately made pure and holy and blameless in the eyes and the sight of God through justification and faith in Christ. And yet this process is also progressive in that because of the ongoing presence of sin in our lives and in our world, we are still day by day being molded and shaped and formed into the image of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, this is not a work where we are casual observers. It's a work where we are active participants. Dallas Willard has said that grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We do not earn our salvation. No amount of good works that we do. You, you and I, uh, like those who would follow the Islamic system, we do not live a life in the scales where uh, we hope that at the end of our lives, the good just somehow outweighs the bad. The gospel says our good will never outweigh the bad. That's the bad news of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that it's not our goodness by which we merit salvation. It's the goodness of Jesus Christ and we receive by faith. God has provided everything that we need in our salvation. And yet as followers of Jesus, we are called to participate and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as we walk in obedience to what God has revealed in his words. We're going to see in Philippians 2 this morning that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by works, but we are called to work out our salvation by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit as we shine the light of the gospel in the darkness of our world. So let's look uh, at Philipp, uh, Philippians chapter 2. We'll be reading uh, first verses 12 and 13. Paul says here, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So very quickly as we move this morning, we see first that sanctification requires our work. Again, it is God who works within us. It's the work of Christ by which we are saved, and yet we are called to work out uh, what God is working within. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, to really uh, get the gravity of what Paul is saying here is he, he tells us to work out salvation with fear and trembling. We need to go back to verse 11 where we left off last week. And what we see in verse 11 is that it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We made that emphatic declaration last week that Jesus Christ is the name above every name. He's the king above all kings. He's the Lord above all lords. And isn't it amazing to know that that verse is still true uh, since last Sunday? Nothing has changed over the course of the last week. Jesus Christ is still the name above every other name. And so Paul says as we work out our salvation, we do this with fear and trembling because we know that all authority belongs to Jesus Christ. All power and all authority belongs to him. That means that one day God's just judgment against all sin is going to take place. So we need the sobering reminder that we, church, need to take our holiness very seriously. We cannot be casual observers in the work of the Holy Spirit. We are called to be active participants. We're called to do the work of walking in obedience in accordance with God's word. To work out salvation with fear and trembling, it means that we live our lives in fearful reverence and humble obedience before the Lord. But this is very key for us this morning. While we're called to work out our faith in the fear of the Lord, we do not live fearfully that we will fail the Lord. 
Go back to where we were a few weeks ago, Philippians 1, 6, where we're given the promise that he who began the good work in us is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can be confident that the Lord's going to finish the work that started in us. You and I, it's not up to us to produce holiness and righteousness for God. We can't do this on our own. The book of Isaiah says that our righteousness on our own before God, it's like filthy rags. We bring absolutely nothing to the table except for our sins. So we don't produce righteousness for God, but God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, produces righteousness through us. I want you to think, for example, just the relationship between a water supply and a water faucet. The gospel is the never-ending supply of living water in Jesus Christ, and yet to fully experience the hope of the gospel, you and I still have to turn on the faucet. The supply has been made. The provision has been made. Everything we need for our righteousness, for our holiness, to walk in accordance with the word of God, it's been provided for us in Jesus, and yet we have the responsibility to participate in his work. So we don't produce righteousness for him. He produces righteousness through us. And we can't do this as casual observers. We do it as active participants. But listen to what Paul says here. He says that God does not just produce the work. He produces the will. Is it God who works within us both to work and to will for his good pleasure? This is so important for us, church, because we need to understand this today. God is not after your guilt-driven, begrudging submission to his word. He does not desire that we would be people who are miserably enslaved to just trying to do our best to be obedient to his commands. The true work of salvation doesn't just change our work, it changes our will. And what God provides for us is not just the power, not just the strength, not just the ability to do the work through the miraculous transforming work of the gospel. He gives us the will to do the work. And when he gives us this will, as he changes our hearts, as he changes our minds, as he changes our desires, we learn to walk in joyful obedience to what God's given. Listen to the, the promise that Jesus gives his disciples. This is in Luke 12, 32. He tells his disciples, fear not, little flock. He says, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is what this means for us today, church. It means that when we ask the Lord, when we ask him for his righteousness, when we ask him for his goodness, when we ask him for his justice, when we ask him for his holiness, he delights in giving us these things. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And we can be confident, not only is the Holy Spirit working within us, the Lord has great joy in giving us this infinite supply of his righteousness and his holiness, if we will simply ask. If we will simply participate and cooperate in the work that he's always doing within. So as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, God enables our will, he empowers our work, and it gives him great pleasure to give us the gifts of the kingdom to his children. Verses uh, 14 through 16, so Paul goes on, to say, do all things. Everybody say, all things. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So sanctification requires our work, and second, we see that sanctification preserves our witness. The words crooked and twisted generation, this calls our attention back to the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, where God's people were wandering in the wilderness. Their hearts were hardened against him. They turned their backs against him. They rebelled against what he had revealed and his desire for uh, this nation. And this is how it's described in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. 
That's how the people of God are described. We, we see this continue on in the gospel accounts. How the, the very people of God rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They, re, they rejected their hope of salvation by turning their backs on Jesus, by crucifying him. And so what Paul's doing here is he is exhorting the Philippian church to live lives that look distinctly different from the rest of the world. And here's the tension that we sometimes live in as followers of Jesus. We are called to be in this world, but we are not called to be of this world. So we, we cannot just totally disconnect from the world. Like, we cannot have an effective witness. As the church, I think sometimes we have this misconception, like we're supposed to live in a plastic bubble. We're supposed to just sort of isolate ourselves from the rest of the world because we're worried that we might be uh, contaminated by the corruption of sin, but we are not called to live in a plastic bubble or an ivory tower or just to sit in a holy huddle. We are called to be light that penetrates the darkness. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're in the midst of the darkness, but we're not the darkness. We're bringing the light that breaks up the darkness. And, and, you know, sometimes as you look at the context of this passage, I think sometimes we tend to forget in our very currently uh, hostile cultural climate that negativity, chronic negativity and cynicism, church, they are not spiritual gifts. It's, it's one thing to be discerning. That is a gift of the Spirit. It's one thing to know the difference between true and false. It's one thing to know the difference between right and almost right. It is not a spiritual gift to be able to highlight everything that's wrong in the world. This actually requires no gifting at all. This is something that any of us can do. And so within the body of Christ, Paul challenges the church in Philippi. All things without grumbling and complaining. And what this does is it empowers our witness in the midst of a dark world. Our world is suffering from this epidemic of chronic negativity, of cynicism, of constantly being able to highlight everything that is wrong. In church, we are called to be light in the midst of that darkness. How we respond to the events of the last week, this is an opportunity to be light in the darkness. We do not operate the way the rest of the world does. We know the king who's sitting on our throne regardless of what changes in our political climate. And so this is an opportunity without grumbling, without disputing, to display the light and the hope of the gospel. So at home, at work, online, in the church, we need to bring our attitudes, we need to bring our actions, we need to bring our words under the authority of the Holy Spirit as he works to make us more like Jesus Christ. And this is the result of this, is it provides this desperately needed light in the world that is not suffering from a shortage of darkness. Satan does not need our help in making this world more dark than it is. We have the opportunity to penetrate this with the light. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So sanctification requires our work. It preserves our witness. And third, it empowers our worship. Now, uh, when you're a a verse-by-verse Bible nerd the way that I am, that's how I I really prefer to to teach the Bible. I think it's the best way to teach the Bible. It's moments like this that drive me crazy because I want to spend about 30 minutes right here on this one concept. We don't have time for that this morning. But I want to really just dig into what it is Paul's trying to express here because if you go back and you study the Old Testament law, a drink offering is uh, a symbolic act of worship where someone would take a cup of wine and they would either pour it out on the ground or they would pour it on top of a sacrifice to symbolize the pouring out of themselves before the Lord. It was a gesture that indicated, I am giving all of myself over to the Lord. And he calls the church of Philippi, he says that their faith is a sacrificial offering, and he is pouring himself out as a drink offering on their faith. This is Paul's way of saying, I will give everything for you people. Paul was willing to lose his status. He was willing to lose his reputation. He was willing to lose his comfort. He was willing to lose his life for the joy of other people in Jesus Christ. 
He was willing to completely empty himself, completely pour himself out, completely give up everything that this world had given him so that others could come to faith in Christ. And this is what we're called to be as followers of Jesus. This is what we are called to do within the body of Christ. It's not to just show up and to be poured out on, but to pour out on others for the growth and the progress and the joy of others in the faith. You know, I think one of the most powerful examples I, I get to see of this on a regular basis, uh, particularly what was highlighted for me this past week. And uh, Thursday night, I took our two oldest boys to the last Beaufort High School JV football game of the year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of limited capacity right now because of COVID restrictions and uh, wouldn't have as many people in there as, we would nor- as you would normally have at a game. But this is what you can always see at student athletic events, and I love this. You see all of the area youth workers and volunteers just buzzing around like a bunch of bees. It's amazing. And so I'm out there Thursday night, and there's Cole, our student minister, and uh, he's uh, interacting with students, and he's meeting new students. And you see uh, the Young Life Squad is out there. They're interacting with students. They're meeting with students. You see FCA people. They're interacting with students, meeting with students. And you know, I did student ministry for 12 years before uh, I got into uh, planting uh, cross community. And, and so it always has a special place for me in my heart. And I believe with all of my heart that student leaders, youth workers, are the best evangelists on the planet. They do not wait for the mission to come to them. They go to the mission. And, and, and I, I just believe, man, if you can penetrate the craziness of teenagerhood with the hope of the gospel, you can reach just about anybody. And they do such an amazing job. And listen, youth ministry, children's ministry, it is exhausting, y'all. It is challenging, hard work, and it's exhausting. And listen, you ask any one of these leaders, if you ask them if they think it's worth it, they will tell you absolutely yes. It is worth the joy of seeing children. It is worth the joy of seeing students be awakened to new life in Jesus Christ. And week after week, day after day, we see this example of them pouring out their lives for the sake of others. And this is what we're called to do and to be as followers of Jesus. So how do we work out our salvation? What does it look like for us to actively participate uh, with the work of the Lord in our hearts and our lives, with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Um, Let's look at a few quick applications as we close this morning. Uh, First, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. R.C. Sproul has said in his book, The Holiness of God, God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite and God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. Listen, church, God is our father, so we can approach him confidently, but God is holy, so we do not approach him casually. We come before him with fear and reverence. Even as we exalt the love and the grace and the mercy of God, we need the reminder that it's his love in spite of our rebellion. It's his grace in spite of our sin. It's his mercy in spite of his judgment. So God is our loving father, which means we approach him confidently, but God is a holy and just judge, so we do not approach him casually. Second, we see that we should work out our salvation without grumbling or disputing. Now, there's a lot of broad applications for this in regards to our attitudes and our actions, but uh, the specific context here is for relationships within the local church. Now, uh, next Sunday, we will have our final membership class of the year 2020, and those of you who have been through our membership class before, you know this. Uh, There's exactly one promise that we make in our membership class. It's about the worst sales pitch of all time, but this is the only promise we make in our membership. It's this, we are not a perfect church, and we will let you down. We just want to go ahead and acknowledge that from the very beginning. Like, we are not going to posture ourselves as, well, thankfully, after 2,000 years, somebody has come along and gotten it right. 
Like that's, that's just not what we're going to do. We need to go ahead and acknowledge that we are broken, sinful people. You're broken, sinful people, which means there's going to be moments, there's going to be times where we don't see eye to eye. There's going to be moments that we don't fully uh, agree with one another. J- but just because there's conflict within the body does not mean there has to be division. We have to be very, very careful that we are constantly checking our hearts. We are checking our attitudes. We are checking our motives. Again, it is not a spiritual gift to be able to know everything that's wrong. It's very much a spiritual gift to be able to sit down with brothers and sisters in the Lord and openly and graciously disagree. So this is what the tension that we want to live in as followers of Christ. We know that we're not always going to see eye to eye, but we can and we are called to do on the authority of God's word all things without grumbling and complaining against one another. Uh, Third, we work out our salvation with commitment to the word. Paul encourages his readers, verse 16 here, hold fast to the word of life. And in the midst of the challenges and chaos of 2020, how desperately do we need to be a people who are clinging fast to the word of God? Above everything else, listen, I think sometimes we, we try to find a shortcut in spiritual growth. You know, like we're the culture, like we want eight minute abs, right? Like we want it quick, we want it now, we don't have to think about it. There is no better indicator of spiritual growth and maturity than daily devotion to God's word. There's no shortcut around this. It's the most simple thing that we can do. Uh, many of us as a church family, uh, back in the beginning of this year, we had over 200 people commit to read uh, through God's word cover to cover in the year 2020. And so if you've been uh, tracking along with that, you're now about uh, 80, 85% done. We're closing down on that fi- final column. And so the last few weeks, we've had several conversations. Folks are like, hey, now that we've read through the Bible this year, uh, what are we going to do next year? We're like, we're going to do it again. <laughs> because we never graduate from our need for the word. None of us in this life are going to fully mine the depths of the mind of God. Like none of us are going to read the Bible one more time and be like, got it all now. Easy peasy, like no problem. No, we day in and day out, year after year, we don't need God's word less. We need it more. We as a culture, we are not suffering for a lack of people who don't know enough about the word of God. And we as a church, we need to lead the way in fierce devotion to God's words. You can just stay tuned over the next few weeks for how we're going to approach that as a church family in the year ahead. Psalmist writes, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. If we are going to be lights in a dark world, we are going to need the lamp of God's word. And so we submit ourselves to its authority. Last, we work out our salvation with gladness and rejoicing. As the early church father, Tertullian, in his work, The Apology, he said, the Christian, even when he is condemned, gives thanks. And that's the heartbeat of invincible joy. That's the heartbeat of of invincible joy. It's a joy that regardless of our feelings, regardless of our emotions, regardless of our circumstances in a given day, we know at the bedrock and the fabric of our soul, there is a God who is never changing. There's total satisfaction to be found in the faith in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul was willing to completely pour himself out for service to others with gladness and rejoicing, knowing fully well that it may cost him his life. So we gladly pour ourselves out for the joy and progress of others, knowing ultimately that we get God's glory as our ultimate reward. And that's what we're after, his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together as we close out our time here. Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that you are going to work out our salvation within us, Lord. So help us to cooperate with the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us to die to ourselves and to die to to what sounds right and submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. Empower us by your spirit to walk in joyful obedience to what you've revealed to us as your people, that we would be lights in the midst of a dark world. Lord, will you be glorified now as we sing, as we lift your name, as we exalt you. We pray and ask that our praise would be a sweet fragrance and aroma 
can be pleasing to you this morning. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together and sing as we close.